All right, so our last speaker of the morning um, is Matt Mullenweg, who's the founder of WordPress. And I wrote down a, just a couple quick facts to make sure I get this right. So WordPress powers 20% of all of the sites on the web, and more than half of the million most visited sites on the web run on WordPress. So it's not just a lot of them, it's a lot of the really big ones. We're interested in having Matt here, not only because WordPress is really impressive, but also because the company itself has a very unusual setup and takes a very cool approach to innovation. So please welcome Matt. Matt, thanks so much for joining us today. Did you get that straw? I did, I did indeed. Um, please have a seat. Sure, thank you. Um, so, Let's just tell people a little bit about the WordPress story, because I think not everybody knows. Just a little bit about um, how you founded it and how it came to be. Sure. Uh, so I was born and raised in Houston, Texas, mm -hmm. and I was attending uh, college there, studying philosophy and political science, and was blogging. And the software, I found a little, little bit high friction, and so started working on things to make it easier for myself to use. And, uh, teamed up with a guy named Mike Little, who was in England, we had never met before, as many open source projects work. And I started hacking on what would become WordPress. So how did it go from that to the company we have now? Still figuring that out. <laughs> um, it was a very organic growth, especially in the beginning. There was um, you know, just releasing features, getting people, was writing documentation, doing the design, a little bit of everything. Our tipping point came around um, the, uh, there was a software called Movable Type at the time, which was utterly dominant in sort of the self-hosted logging space, had maybe 90, 95% market share. And they decided to change their licensing. It was proprietary software, which meant that they could arbitrarily change the terms of what you could use or upgrade the software. Um, and this was taken very badly by the community. And a dangerous part about making blogging software is you give all of your customers megaphones. <laughs> and when they're unhappy, they use them. Um, so there was a, you know, a uproar in the blogosphere. And um, by luck or coincidence, about two weeks before, I had written a movable type importer. <laughs> and we had released our version 1.0. Um, so we were kind of uh, poised um, where people started to say, well, perhaps instead of upgrading, I'll switch to this thing. And then more importantly, the conversation really shifted to not about, one, about money, about how much it cost, but really about freedom which is what I believe the most in with regards to software in particular, because as you think, more and more of our lives are essentially run by software. And um, if you don't control the software, the software controls you. Uh, the GPL, which is the license that WordPress is under, uh, has four fundamental freedoms. And freedom zero is the freedom to use the software for any purpose. No one can take that away from you. I can't change a license and hinder your ability to use it. So. When people started to think of sort of the bill of rights of software, which in my opinion is a GPL, um, that was the tipping point because they started to adopt it not just because of the features or because they were mad at one person or another, but really because of the intrinsic uh, license and the rights inherent in it. Right. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the company itself. How many employees do you have now? We're about two, I think 25, 225 today. Wow. And where are those people? All over. Is anyone here, actually? I don't know. <laughs> Many WordPressers, yeah. <laughs> uh, we're in about 190 cities. Uh, so we have a, a headquarters, a small building here in San Francisco. Um, 
but it's empty most days. <laughs> I haven't been there personally in a few months. <laughs> we, uh, when I started the company, the company's called Automatic, by the way. Um, Automatic, think of it like the Procter & Gamble, and WordPress is like our Swiffer, Kismet, Vault Press, those are our brands. Um, we wanted to build the company in the same way that we were working as an open source project. And so the first couple of folks I was working with, you know, there was a fellow in Texas. Uh, I had moved to San Francisco already. I was working for CNET. So a fellow in Texas, a fellow in Vermont, a fellow in uh, Blarney, Ireland. <laughs> so we were kind of distributed from day one. And it just didn't make any sense, especially having not a ton of money, to try to move everyone to one of the most expensive places in the United States, if not the world, um, to bootstrap a company. <laughs> but we all do this, right? Like, so many companies do it, I don't understand. So we just started out distributed. And then from there, we just kept doing it. And it was kind of funny because along the way, everyone kind of says, and still to this day, says it's going to break. <laughs> like, oh, that works great when you're 10 or 15 people. When you get to 30, oh, it falls over. Oh, 30 is good, but 100 is the magic number. And then it's Dunbar's number, right? 150. And we've kind of blown past all of those. Um, we'll have hired about 120 people just this year. Um, and it's working really great. And I can't honestly imagine working any other way. We'll come back to that physical setup in just a minute. Um, let's talk about your vision for the company. So now we've got a sense of where you started, how the company is working. Where do you see it going over the next few years? Well, our mission is democratize publishing. Um, and we're 20% of the way there. <laughs> so, uh, you know, personally, I would love to see, it doesn't need to be WordPress, but I would love to see a majority of the, the internet powered by open source software. And I think it's, more and more important. I think we're somewhat at a nadir in terms of uh, open and distributed versus closed and proprietary. Where often in technology we go through these cycles where we trade off freedom for convenience, essentially. Uh, ben Franklin has words on. But, um, you know, a decade ago people were putting AOL keywords on billboards, and today it's Twitter handles. At Photomat, by the way. <laughs> uh, that, uh, that ultimately doesn't belong to you or me or anyone except Twitter and its shareholders. And I think that if you're building something for the long term, it's great to own your channels, to be a master of your own domain, to build on the distributed systems that make the open and independent web work. And this, uh, a lot of what WordPress is doing is sort of lighting up that dark matter of the web. It's kind of the thing that holds it all together, this independent web. But we don't see it because it doesn't really show up on Comscore as a single domain or you know, it doesn't IPO or go public or anything. But I think it's actually where the most interesting things on the internet are happening. In terms of the company, do you think about that as something you, you would keep private the, the whole way? That, that going public might prevent you from me reaching that vision? Everything is just a means to an end, right? So like uh, my favorite quote, and actually Zuck stole it and butchered it in their S1, but it was Walt Disney who said it originally, which is, we don't make movies to make money, we make money to make more movies. So in terms of how I tried to think of the company, it's just what enables us to employ the next 225 amazing folks around the world and have them building the next generation of what the independent web needs. All right, so big vision, 225 people around the world. How do you keep them in line with that vision. So one of the, <laughs> the, the things you guys do, as I understand, is um, 
you allow for a lot of experimentation mm -hmm. within your teams, and you have a, a continuous deployment kind of setup so people can push code all day, every day. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you could get from that is a lot of focus on very incremental small changes. How do you keep, especially when you're not having a lot of personal contact with them, they're not getting that big vision and that, that inspiration. How do you keep that aligned? Well, I think it's, it's not that different. It sounds like it's really different and weird, but it's probably not that different from what a company that is on two floors of a building <laughs> you know, deals with. You're not going to see, above a certain point, you're not going to see everyone every day. So it's all about communication. Uh, we use a system of internal blogs powered by WordPress on a theme called P2. P2theme.com, that uh, it's just, uh, think of it like a social cast or a Yammer, but it's just built on WordPress. And everything's open by default. So the designers are posting mock-ups, the store team's talking about their, their tests they're doing on the store, the business team is posting all the revenues and exactly what happened, and, and there's now over a thousand posts and comments per day. I used to read them all, I can't anymore. <laughs> um, and so you can kind of follow things. And then we... It, if it works, the company starts to resemble what the internet looks like and mm -hmm. how it works internally. So we built like a Google Alert system. It's called AutoMatcher. And so if someone mentions something that a topic I'm following or a code name for a project, um, I'll get a little notification about that. And then I can go and check it out and participate in that conversation. It sort of scales the communication without everyone having to, well, hey, don't you hate being CC'd on everything? <laughs> I know you work in events, so like you have a million emails a minute. Um, it just it turns that model on its head, where it's not like everyone's trying to include everyone else in a push fashion, which email is fundamentally, but allows people to sort of participate and come in and out of the stream of conversations as they have time for, as as is appropriate. But you're right that it does sort of lend itself to incremental change, and in fact, it does lend itself to when you have over a thousand posts and comments and everything per day. You could spend the majority of your day just reading those, and you're still working. <laughs> you're not really creating anything. Yeah. Um, unless you're a manager and it's your job to just read and post, but uh, you're not really building. And so I feel like it's common for people who join Automatic to go through a cycle where they kind of run in, it's like a super excited and start running in circles and sort of information overload, and uh, then take a step back because ultimately it's about accountability. What are you creating? And say, ooh. Maybe I should unsubscribe from a few things. Uh, maybe I should follow fewer things, and, or maybe even unplug for a few hours per day, mm -hmm. uh, which is not uncommon, and we encourage. I mean, worst comes to worst, you can always call someone or text someone. <laughs> and there's very, very, very few emergencies. If you're not on the ops team, you basically, we never have fire drills. We don't have deadlines usually, which allows for that. Uh, it's just a, it's a different world. So you mentioned accountability, and I was curious about that. Um, I, Scott Birkin um, have worked with you guys for about a year and wrote a book recently about his work with WordPress. And I had just read it, and he's talking about how the customer service team, which I think is called the happiness team, yep. um, it has a bunch of metrics that they follow for the work they're doing. Almost all the other metrics that I noticed that he mentioned were about how customers use the site, but not how employees are working. Hmm. And I wondered if there are other metrics that you look at or how you think about accountability. Um, is, is accountability that somebody has unplugged for two hours in the day and we assume that they're working during that time? Oh, I mean, what does it mean to be working? We have sort of this factory model where like, we think someone's working if they show up in the morning and they're not drunk or they're, you know. 
Maybe. They don't sleep at their desk and they leave at the right time and they're dressed nicely or whatever that is. But that has so little to do with what you create. Yeah. And I'm sure we all know people who create a lot without maybe fitting in those norms. Um, so really, it just takes it. That's all input. Mm -hmm. And so we're really good at measuring input. As humans, we're designed to perceive you know, so many things about people and faces and this, uh, appearance. Um, but in a company, what matters is output. And sure, there's ways to measure output, but they tend to be very simplistic. I mean, there's, we track, of course, commits, tickets reply to, it's, it's not, ever all of that stuff. But we don't actually use it except perhaps an aggregate for looking at overall activity or something like that. Um, it's kind of fun to see, like, out of the, on average, we ever do about 100 deploys per day to all the servers. And uh, it's kind of cool to see like what percentage of those are on Sundays, which is about 15%, <laughs> which is higher than I would think. Um, so yeah, ultimately though, one thing that does happen sometimes, and this sort of to its model, especially on some of the bigger teams, like core happiness, is if someone drops off, you might not notice for a day or two. Mm. So that's totally weird. <laughs> In an office, you would notice that. Right. Do, do you start to notice because there's less stuff happening in that group at some point? Well, ultimately, you're on a team. Mm -hmm. The team is small. We try to make them between five and ten people. And uh, they're fully autonomous. And so if a colleague doesn't show up for a day or two, we'll, we'll probably notice. <laughs> or hopefully, right? Like, <laughs> they were useful. <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> um, why five to ten people? I don't know. It seems <laughs> to work well. Mm -hmm. um, the teams, we now have... My goodness, uh, 26, 27 teams. And we kind of, they kind of resemble what automatic looked like when we were five to 10 people. Hmm. And what happens is just when a team, a team sort of grows organically, and then, uh, oh, what's this cell division called? Is it mitosis? Mitosis, I think. Ooh. I'm going to go with mitosis. I'll go with mitosis. <laughs> um, they naturally divide when they get to a certain size. Uh, because at one point, when you have 12 people on a team, they're probably not just doing one thing. They're probably working on a couple different projects. It'd be a very natural division. And hopefully within the time when it got that big, someone who wants to be a lead has emerged on the team. It's actually something that's pretty interesting that uh, is different from most companies I talk to. Uh, for us, a lead role is, is more fungible. So you can become a lead uh, and you don't... You, uh, best way to put this is there's no change in compensation when you become a lead, and conversely, no penalties when you decide to stop being a lead. Um, a lot of corporate structures, including when I worked for CNET, the way you grew was by managing people. And that's how you moved up the ranks. Um, and it, some companies have technical tracks of growth as well, but it's a lot more rare. But I don't want someone to feel like to grow in their career, they need to be a manager. And conversely, if someone becomes a manager, like we say, you should do this, and a few months later they find they're less happy than when they were, you know, heads deep in, head deep in the code all day, I don't want them to feel bad for letting it go. So we actually have a lot of our leads rotate um, in and out of the position over time, and we try to demonstrate that as a best practice. Hmm. So what does it mean to be a lead? What is the role that they're playing? It varies from team to team, but ultimately the lead helps uh, make sure everyone on the team is happy and keeps the trains running on time. So just are, is the team doing what they said they would do? Okay, before you said that you don't have any deadlines. So how can those trains be running on time if there's no deadlines? 
Well, to me, a deadline is more of an external thing, mm -hmm. um, where a train running on time is just more, are we doing what we said we would do? Okay. And if we're not, is it because we could work better or because maybe we're just bad at guessing what we think we could do, which of course in software is, is very true. Uh, but you can, you can orient it. You can uh, sort of iterate and learn on your estimations and your promises as well. Do you have a system for sharing within the company kind of best practices to get away from bad guesses, for example? A lot of it's organic. So to me, one of the most fascinating things is how people can change drastically when they join a team and vice versa, how people joining a team can change the entire dynamic. And so sometimes what I'll try to do is if a team seems to be really kicking butt, um, perhaps make those, sort of seed those people or rotate people through that team so it's sort of whatever their best practices sort of organically infect the other teams. And um, we try not to do anything by decree. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's funny, an open source, the term is often benevolent dictator, mm -hmm. or BDFL, benevolent dictator for life. And I like to joke that it's the most powerless dictatorship in the world. Like, <laughs> you don't get a plane, you don't get anything good. Um, because essentially people are working as volunteers because they want to. So you really need to align the incentives for them to want to do things. And I try to take the same approach in the company. Um, ultimately, I mean, these are some of the smartest engineers I've met in my life. They could work anywhere. They could do anything. Um, why are they there? You want to create an environment where they enjoy what they're doing and feel like they have the autonomy, damping autonomy, mastery, and purpose of, uh, of what they're engaged with. And part of that is just saying, we're not going to tell you how to do your job. If you find a better way to do it, try it. And maybe convince your team to do it. And if other teams do it, they'll start to try it out as well. Is that sort of freedom the kind of incentive that people need? Or are there other things that you do that we might find surprising? Uh, some people, well, a lot of people love the autonomy of working from home, setting your own schedule. Like, I don't really care what hours you're working, how late you sleep, whether you pick up your kids from school in the afternoon. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. um, it's all about your output. And maybe someone can do the work that the rest of us do in eight hours or ten hours in one hour. And good for them. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. Um, people love to travel. Uh, so... We do, you know, we're distributed, but we actually get together once the whole company once a year, and then we allow the teams to get together as much as they want and wherever they want. So kind of the money we save on office space, we kind of blow on travel. <laughs> um, so this week there's a meetup in Hawaii. Uh, next week there's one in Tokyo with a mobile team. I've been to ones in Athens, Greece, uh, Tybee Island in Georgia, really all over the world. And um, we just let people do it. And... Uh, you know, then people are like, wow, don't they waste money or blah, blah, blah. But it's not, I mean, these aren't children. <laughs> these are adults that presumably you hired because they're intelligent and trustworthy. And, and so the way we deal with costs is just by making it transparent. So every team after the meetup just publishes what they spent on a per person per night basis. And so teams can look at that and see, oh, if we go to Tybee Island, it's actually a lot cheaper than going to Tokyo, for example. <laughs> but if we go to Tokyo, there's this hotel we can stay in outside of town that's actually pretty great, and they have fantastic internet. That's interesting. All right, so last question. Um, one of the things we're really interested in in this point in the lean startup uh, community and its growth is how do you, um, how does your company grow using lean startup principles? How do you grow when you're doing a lot of experimentation and keep that as part of the focus? And one of the things I wonder about is how do you 
lead that. You must have had to change some of your leadership a little bit to make sure that those things are staying together. You're growing, which is a lot about execution, and you're experimenting, which is a lot about your future and your vision. How does your leadership address that? I'd say one of the things I'm very much still figuring out as well is um, it's hard for me, sometimes things that seem very obvious to me, um, I can either have difficulty articulating or better articulating one-on-one, -on -one, maybe difficulty writing down a way that everyone can get on the same page on. Um, so that's just been, that's something I'm working through. Uh, it's funny because I'm, I'm kind of anti-roadmap, <laughs> but I find that a lot of people are very comforted by roadmaps. And uh, it's not the plan, it's the planning, perhaps, that is valuable to folks. And uh, I think it's also good to take a step back from the day to day mm -hmm. and maybe think about well, what does this look like five, 10, 20 years from now? If we're really building a company for the long term, what do we need to do if we want to be 50.1% of all websites? And what are the steps along the way? But ultimately, the biggest thing, and what I still spend from a third to a majority of my time on, is hiring. Uh, nothing has the impact of uh, getting the right people around the table. And you can't manage your way out of a bad team. Um, it's, it's something we've experimented with a ton. Uh, how we end up hiring now, which I would actually recommend everyone try. Well, first a little bit, you need to create some place people want to work, because otherwise this whole system doesn't work. <laughs> uh, but what we do is we, uh, we do trials. So everyone who joins the company, um, we hire them on a contract basis first. Uh, nights and weekends, we're not asking them to leave the job or anything like that, so it's, and it's a mutual trial. So uh, it's a standard rate, $25 per hour. Same for whether you're coming in as a CFO or as a happiness engineer. And um, you just do the actual work. So we do projects with them. Um, whether it's on the open source side or if, they're, if it's support, they're answering tickets. If it's on the forums, they're on the forums. If it's design, they're designing things. And there's nothing like being in the trenches with someone and actually working with them day by day. I haven't seen a single thing on a resume. I haven't seen a single thing in an email. Um, I still review all the incoming resumes. And so then at the end of this trial, we both really know whether we want to work together. And honestly, for some people, the way we work is not the best. Uh, it's not a good fit. They want to play frisbee at lunch with their colleagues or things. And, um, but normally at the end of it, you have a very, very good idea of who you want. And we end up hiring actually, I think it's about 40% about 40 of the people we do a trial with. So it's a huge investment in time. Uh, but ultimately, it leads to extremely little turnover. So I think we've only ever had, the past eight and a half years, maybe 10 people leave the company and uh, another 25 or 30 that we've let go. Wow. All right, I wish we had more time to dive into that, and we don't, I'm sorry. But um, I love this story, and I really appreciate your taking the time. Would you please thank Matt for joining us today? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.